Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Dr Chris Napier is a physiotherapist, Assistant Professor and Director of the RUN Lab at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, and a two-hour 33 marathoner. So really, who better to share tips for ramping up running training? Today, we discuss strategies for performing well and staying injury-free, how to choose a new running shoe, and Chris shares his approach to designing an effective all-round running training program. Dr. Chris Napier, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Chris. And you and I are both in the Northern Hemisphere. We're emerging into this beautiful spring weather, which means that it's running season. I know that running season never really stops for you because you're a kind of all-weather running guy. But for a lot of us, I think the running season is within touching distance, at least those of us who don't like to venture out so much in winter. So tell me, Chris, what are the common mistakes that people make when they start to ramp up their running training well, I think, you know, you're right. It's, it's the weather's getting nicer now. People are enjoying being outside. You know, I was out for a, a nice run yesterday along the, the seawall in Vancouver, and it was packed with walkers and runners. And, and people like to take advantage of that, right, when the, the, the sun starts to come out for longer and warms up. In climates like you and I live in where we can run outside year-round, there's, uh, you know, the danger of just wanting to be out there for longer, right? So you you can... When the weather is nicer, you you get on a run and you think, ah, oh, I'm feeling great. I'm just going to keep going here. And so maybe just picking up the the volume a little bit too much too quickly in climates where you know you can't run outside too much through the winter or people choose not to. Maybe you're contained to a, a treadmill indoors or just much less frequency of running. I think there's there's more of a danger because you get outside and and you know most runners would prefer to run outside than on a treadmill I think at all times and so you know the again picking up the the frequency of those runs or the the duration just a little bit too much too soon there are other things that are associated with that so perhaps exploring new surfaces so again if you're on a treadmill where you might get a nice sort of soft flexible ride and then you move outside and you're running on concrete right that's a, that's a change and so any of those changes need to be faced in. And Chris, you combine a research career with your clinical practice work. And I know that in your clinical practice, you're often working with runners. What are the kinds of, the typical kinds of injuries that you see in your clinical population? If I'm a rehabilitation clinician who's working with runners, what are the things that I really need to nail and feel really comfortable managing? The big ones are things like telephemoral pain, maybe IT band pain, Certainly lower limb stress fractures, especially in the, the foot and the tibia, Achilles tendinopathy, plantar fasciitis. Those are sort of the, the main ones. And then, you know, it's important to also have an understanding of things that you might see specifically in runners that you don't necessarily see in the rest of the population or commonly see in the rest of the population. Those are things like uh, Morton's neuroma or like a navicular stress fracture. Another one I see often is tibialis posterior tendon dysfunction. So, oh, another one that's that's common or not common in runners, but you don't want to miss it is cuboid subluxation. And that's one that I tend to see often in these sort of changing seasons when someone's 
maybe switching footwear, you know, maybe going from a more structured shoe to a more flexible shoe or switching surfaces from like a, uh, a maybe more rigid or consistent surface to trails uh, or, or grass. And I see this cuboid subluxation, which often gets missed. Now you mentioned footwear and surfaces. Let's let's go to this transition change in load. What are the keys to managing changes in load? So things like if I'm transitioning from a more structured shoe to a minimalist shoe, or if I'm transitioning from running on flat surface to or or tartan track to running on the trails, what are the key things to managing some of those transitions, Chris? You know, a lot of it's just common sense. Like I think most people know that they shouldn't just suddenly convert over 100% to any of those things. It's just, you know, it takes some planning and some intent, though, on the on the part of the runner. And I think that's where the difficulty comes in. You know, it is you, you the, the weather is suddenly really nice and you decide, oh, I'm not going to run on the treadmill of the gym today. I'm going to go for a run, you know, along the, the pavement or I'm going to head into the trails because it's dry in there today. So people will make decisions more spur of the moment like that, and that can have consequences. But if you do plan ahead and you know that you're going to be transitioning from one environment to another or one surface to another or or from one shoe to a different shoe, you can plan that into your, your training program, right? Just sort of work it in so that maybe you transition by running you know, a few shorter runs in a new pair of shoes or on a different surface, and then, you know, slowly add in more runs or, or different types of runs on those new surfaces or shoes until you're sort of feeling like you're, you are transitioned. And it can take some time, you know, it, it's different with everyone, but some people can, you know, transition to a new pair of shoes or a new surface in a couple of weeks. Some people it takes longer, four to six weeks, perhaps. If you're going from, you know, a really drastic change in footwear, for instance, you know, to like a, like from a, a really cushioned shoe to a more minimalist shoe, that can take up to six months quite easily. Let's talk a bit about footwear. Cause I think when you walk into the running shoe store or nowadays you log into the running shoe store and there's just a plethora of different options and colors and designs and neutral and low drop. So there's a whole bunch of different terms. There's so many different shoes to choose from. So what's some basic advice that you give to the runners that you work with and that you would encourage clinicians listening today to share with the runners that they're working with? How do I make sense of all of these shoe options? It can be overwhelming for sure, especially if you're a new runner. And there's a lot of hype and, and advertising out there that can be that can make it even more confusing. The number one thing, the first thing you need to do is go to a running specific store, you know, like an independent running store where there's people in there who know running, who know the different options. Don't go to a kind of a generic sporting goods store to get your running gear. That would be number one, because a a knowledgeable staff can can really help with assessing you and and what you want and, and putting in the right shoes. I would say, you know, there's no perfect shoe out there that we can say this is the shoe that everyone should wear as far as injury prevention goes we know that there's there's all kinds of different technology in today's shoes but we also know that there's there's no shoe that's going to prevent injury from occurring across the board and so that being said there are shoes that can cause injuries in particular people right so if we if you have a history of Achilles tendinopathy you probably don't want to go in a shoe that's a low heel drop because it's going to put more load on the Achilles. 
Now, that's not to say that you can't get there eventually. But again, if that is a goal for you, then you really need to work on weaning into something like that, going from a higher drop to a lower drop over a long period of time and, and seeing if you can adapt to it. If you have a history of Morton's neuroma, you don't want to go into a shoe that's really narrow through the forefoot. You want to try and pick something that's got a bit more width there. So there's there's a number of things that you should take into account if you do have a history of particular injuries. But of course, then there's the whole performance side of shoes now, which is a, a huge market. And pretty much every brand out there now has a carbon plated shoe with specialized, you know, resilient light foam with a high stack height. And, and so, you know, a lot of runners are now buying these very expensive shoes and not only racing in them, but training in them. And we're starting to see some very low level evidence that there might be some injuries that are linked perhaps to, to training in these shoes. There's still a lot of speculation as to, to why or how what the mechanisms are there. But I think we do have to be cautious about training in, in those performance shoes. And, and my personal opinion is you should probably try and stick to, to racing and, and maybe some key workouts in them. But getting back to sort of what the, you know, how to, how to actually go into the store and, and select a shoe. I think if you have a bit of an idea of what shoe might work for your foot and your, your previous history, go on and just try a bunch of different shoes on, make sure you run around in them at the store or outside the store, up and down the block. Like some stores will let you buy some shoes and take them and run on the treadmill for a few times and, and uh, see how they feel and return them during the ones that don't feel as good. You know, I recommend just finding the one that's most comfortable on your foot when you're running, because we don't have anything else really to go on in terms of, you know, whether a shoe is going to prevent an injury for you. So once we've got the the right kind of shoe and we're ready to get out and then ramp up the, the training, what is the best way to transition from your indoor training to your outdoor training, Chris? You just have to have a bit of a plan. So you have to have some structure to that transition and you need to make sure that, you know, you're, you're weaning into that environment. And another issue that, that can arise, and it's, it's not usually something that arises if you're still running in the same sort of environment. So for instance, if you're, if you live in Vancouver and you transition from running indoors to outdoors, you know, we don't get a sudden change in temperature uh, for the environment that much. But if you're training through a Northern Hemisphere winter and you have a race on the calendar that is more of a destination race in a different climate, that is something you really need to make sure you plan for. Because if you are training in, you know, five to 10 degrees Celsius and you're going to a race where it's 20, 25 degrees Celsius, perhaps, that is going to be a big shock to your system. And you do need to acclimate to that. You only really need seven to 10 days to, to do that. But it's important, you know, things like cranking the heat in the, in the room where you're running in the treadmill to try and get used to those temperatures, taking a, a hot tub or a sauna immediately after your run to kind of keep that core body temperature up or, you know, wearing extra clothing on runs. So things are like that you can, um, you can do, which will help you to kind of adapt and prepare for that race. Yeah, and I guess also thinking about what sort of hydration strategy is going to make a difference for you. What's your normal hydration strategy? Is that going to apply to the environment? With If you're going from, let's say, Vancouver or you're going from Calgary to Kona to Hawaii, 
that's going to have very different implications. You've got humidity and, and a whole bunch of, of things outside of just the temperature too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think if you have the luxury of getting there a few days early to assist in that acclimation period, that's, that's great as well. Chris, there's more to running training than simply getting miles in the legs. So how should people think about that balance across distance, intensity, strength training, other sorts of cross-training that one might build into a training program, other types of loading, how, how to balance all of those things? You know, most runners just like to run. They don't like to spend time in the gym. They don't want to do strength training exercises. They don't necessarily want to do cross-training. And so it can be difficult to motivate runners to do, to do training outside of running. But I think there's, there's more and more acceptance of the benefits of the, the additional strength training and, and perhaps cross training, especially as we get older. So, you know, as we start to pass the age of 40, that strength training can be a really, really important component. I always tell runners that it's, it's not just about preventing injury, but it's about maintaining performance. And, and you really need to add that sort of that different strength stimulus if you can get in the gym for one to two days a week and work on some strength training, you know, just a handful of exercises where you're doing low rep and, and high resistance, that can really build capacity in your musculoskeletal system, can provide more resilience to some of those changes we talked about. You know, if you're, if you're maybe prone to getting injured when you're switching surfaces or shoes or that sort of thing, perhaps building a bit of base strength can increase your resilience to, to some of that. But also, it'll make you faster. And that's usually what gets people motivated to, to spend the time in there. It's a good selling point, improving your performance, running faster. Chris, what does a gym program, what sort of a gym program do you like to design for the runners that you work with? What, what kind of basic parameters, what kind of exercises do you like to build into a strength training program? I like to keep it really simple. I know that runners typically don't go to the gym and enjoy their time there. They'd rather be outside getting an extra 10, 20 K in, right? So I think if you can, so one, one thing you can do is try and tack it on to a run, right? So if they're, if they're able to finish their run at the gym or, you know, if they have a home gym or, or something where they live, that's great because, you know, it's not an extra session. It's just sort of tacked on to the end of an easy run perhaps. But I like to keep the, the exercises short and sweet, you know, three to four sets of six to eight reps of some key lower limb strengthening exercises. So we know the calves are a workhorse for runners. So I really like to focus on, um, on the two main muscle groups there. So we're looking at, you know, the soleus for sure, and also the gastroc. So doing a seated and standing heel drop because we're mainly wanting to target the, the tendon because that's where we get a lot of the energy return in running. We want to make sure that, again, it's that high resistance focusing. I usually focus more on the eccentric component. So, you know, for both of those, I sort of prescribe two legs going up and then one leg coming down nice and slow. I also like deadlifts because that sort of uh, strengthens the, the posterior chain, the glutes and the hamstrings. I try to do more single leg and double leg when possible. And then, uh, you know, squats are always good. Lunges can be good, but you don't have to do 10 different exercises. You don't have to do, you know, three different types of exercises for the same muscle group. 
Uh, I like to really keep it short and sweet for the runners and not necessarily sort of try to hit the, the trendy exercise of the week either. If you can access a gym, it's great because you can get the, the really high resistance. If not, then there, there's other strategies you can use to kind of make sure you get that weight. And I guess the other the other attraction is for people who do really love to train outdoors. There's a lot of outdoor gyms these days that you can kind of adapt and make use of the outdoor space while still getting some strength training and it doesn't have to feel like I'm stuck inside doing my strength training. Absolutely. What about plyometrics? Where do plyometrics fit in here, Chris? Are they something that you build into a, a typical program or are plyometrics something that you reserve for transitioning back from injury, let's say, to build the spring capacity in the Achilles tendon if you're working with someone who's had trouble with Achilles tendinopathy? Yeah, so plyometrics, um, so building what you what you were just saying about being able to use, you know, outdoors and natural environments, plyometrics are great for that. Typically, the way I use plyometrics is um, after I've gotten a bit of base strength from the gym. And the reason for that for me is just more that they're, they're a little bit higher risk, right? Um, they're more dynamic for someone who maybe doesn't have that base strength or isn't far along in their training program. They can be a bit more risky for, for developing injury. But once you've got that base strength, I think plyometrics are a really great way to maintain it. And because of the ease of, you know, doing them outside of the gym or tacking them on at the end of a run or in the middle of a run, you know, it's easier to keep someone motivated to do those exercises and, and keep them in their program. The evidence out there right now is, is you know, basically that, that, that high resistance gym work or the plyometric training, they're, they're pretty similar in terms of the benefits that you'll get for running. So I typically, yeah, start with the the base training in the gym and progress someone towards plyometrics. Coming back from injury, plyometrics can be a little bit higher risk, but if they're done in a graded approach, you know, starting with basic things like hopping or skipping, then you can certainly, you know, start someone on that and, and progress it. I'm thinking about either performance or injury prevention or or even managing returning from injury. How much do you tinker with someone's running technique, their cadence, these kinds of things? I'm very much a believer of uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So you have to have a good reason to change those things for the most part. I think when you can link it to the injury that they're just getting over, or if if you think that it's something that may help their recovery or improve their recovery, then certainly I'll, I'll employ some sort of gait retraining. I also try to keep the the gait retraining approach fairly simplistic and aim for kind of, you know, the really low risk, high reward sort of gait retraining. So for me, that's usually something like increasing cadence if it's called for. Maybe thinking about increasing step width if again there's a reason to, if if uh, I'm seeing a crossover gait or an asymmetrical step width then that's something I'll use. Those are probably the two ones I use most. Sometimes I'll use cues like, you know, running softly or quietly. I think you have to be really careful about modifying more specific gait changes, right? If, if you're trying to change foot abduction angle, foot strike, anything like that, I think you can quickly get yourself into more trouble or sort of send someone down a path to a, a different injury. So you've got to have a pretty good reason for doing one of those types of interventions. And those 
those reasons do exist. For instance, with chronic exertional compartment syndrome, that's something that I I will change someone's foot strike. If they're a rear foot striker with that, I will try and move them to a midfoot or forefoot. That's probably the only time I would do that intervention. But there are there are interventions like that that you know have good reasons behind them at, at certain times. For folks who are listening and thinking about signing up for their first marathon, what are your tips? Don't rush it. People who have that marathon on their bucket list, they're keen, they're excited. Maybe it's a New Year's resolution or maybe it's, you know, hitting a certain age milestone. You know, I, I advise that people take a full year to to build up to the, the volume and the intensity that's necessary to, to complete a marathon satisfactorily. So you know, it takes time for the musculoskeletal system to adapt to those stresses of, you know, the high mileage, which is really what you need for running a marathon. I think it's important that people understand the consistency and the dedication of time that it takes to run a marathon. You know, it's not something you can just kind of do on the side. You, You do have to kind of commit to it. And I don't really recommend people try to run a marathon on, on minimal training. It's, it's, it's better to prepare properly. You know, you get much more out of it. Uh, I actually find that it's the, it's the training for the marathon that is the most rewarding experience for me, pushing yourself to go places you haven't gone before, getting yourself out the door for your long run when the weather's terrible, you know, it builds character and, and toughness. And, you know, the race itself is really just a, a celebration of the, the efforts you put in over the course of your training. For me, it's it's very much a message of don't rush it. Take your time, enjoy the process, and enjoy you know not only the the physical but the the, the mental benefits of that training. Chris, it's been wonderful to hear your experience and your tips about running running coaching and managing injury today on JOSPT Insights. Thanks for joining me. All right, appreciate it. Thank you. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.